Amen. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. If, you could, if you've got a marker in your Bible, uh, most of you, if you've got a Bible with you, maybe you've got a, um, you're looking at it on your app, you pulled it up on your app, you can bookmark Philippians. We're going to be there for the next eight weeks. We're going to walk through the book of Philippians verse by verse. I'm really excited about that. One of the reasons that you can, that it's good to walk through books of the Bible like this is because it gives us a fuller picture of what this book means, what is being intended here from Paul. But also, it allows us to tackle subjects that sometimes we wouldn't tackle because it's not on the hit list of the kind of the common things. We're going to be looking throughout this entire uh, two months at what this book has to say to us. But before we do that, I want you to, we're going to play a little guessing game for a moment. I'm going to read you a description and see if you can figure out exactly what this particular description is talking about. This was actually on a, uh, a cable news network, and they were describing an institution. It says, it is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everyone, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. Its warm glow is a beacon of hope. And salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously compromised, are all across the South coming to it. It's a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful. It is always there for you. Anybody got a clue what it's talking about? It is, according to Jim, Waffle House. Jim, I'm proud of you, man. Jim Whitfield came right out of his mouth here at the front, right? How many of you are Waffle House friends, right? All right. I heard an amen in the house of the Lord there. Uh, you know, the old rule in construction is you can have it fast, good, and cheap. You can have two of those, but not all three. Waffle House begs to differ, right? They give it fast, good, and cheap. It's good food fast is what they say. Now, it may not be a religious experience for you to go to Waffle House, but I couldn't help but think... That no matter how much you love the scattered, smothered, and covered hash browns, that that's a description that ought to be made about the church. No matter who you are, where you are in life, what problems you may have, that you feel welcome. I mean, listen to some of the ways it was described. Everyone is welcome. It's a beacon of hope that salvation is offered to the hungry, the lost, and the seriously compromised. It is a place of nourishment. And it is always there for you. Now, this is over the next few weeks as we talk. You can take the Waffle House picture off. People are getting hungry. All right. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the book of Philippians. And it is a letter written to a church that would have had lots of the same qualities that we just read. I would say, and this is from studying the New Testament letters, that if Paul, if you put Paul down and you had truth serum in Paul, not that Paul would have lied to you anyways, but if you made him tell you his favorite church, I think this would have been it. It's just the way he talks about it. He writes a personal letter to them here. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. It's a church that he helped start. It was on his second missionary journey, and you may not know where Philippi is, but it is in, considered in Europe. All right, We have a map, actually, an uh, old Bible map there. It's up here in the top corner. You can see where Jerusalem is down there. And Paul, on his first missionary journey, just went into Asia Minor, into this area, Ephesus, um, Colossians. You can see some of the churches that you may have known if you remember your Acts discussions. 
On his second missionary journey, after they had been told that Gentiles could come into the faith without having to be circumcised, that they could come freely, he then went again and was just going to go to this area when he had a dream one night that there was a Macedonian man calling him over. You can see up here, this is Macedonia, this is Europe. And so, Paul, with Timothy, he picks up Luke, has Silas, they go to Philippi. They meet a lady named Lydia there who is a purple dye um, clothing trader. She uh, welcomes them in. She becomes a believer. She is kind of the first foundational piece of the Philippian church. He goes back to them on his third missionary journey and then is eventually arrested and imprisoned in Rome where he is arrested here, probably under the arrest of the Roman government here, and he writes a letter back to these people. It's a personal letter. The way that it is written at the beginning is not a letter of here is some theology, although there's theology in the book. It's not a book about church um, um, establishment, although there's discussions of that. It's not about the governance of a church, although there's there it's in there. This book primarily is a letter, a personal letter, from the founding pastor of the church to a church that he dearly loves. And he sets the whole book up in the first 11 verses with this greeting and prayer. Let's read it together, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. It's the opening personal letter that he has in a letter that's going to be filled with verses that you know. Filled with things that you've read, things that you've memorized, things that, that people just kind of said to me, oh yeah, 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 I know that verse. Like, and just a few verses later, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. Or only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or don't do anything out of rivalry or selfish conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than you. Or let your attitude be like that of Christ Jesus. Or work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes from Him. Forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, think on such things. And I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Philippians may be the most quotable letter that we have in the New Testament. And yet, it is a personal letter from a pastor that's just trying to encourage the people 
that he loves. A couple of things stand out to me as I read this introduction, this important introduction to the body of the letter. A couple of things really stick out to me, but probably the one that sticks out to me the most is his love and affection for the church. Look at verse 3. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, we've talked about this with the word all and we've talked a little bit about the word every, but you know that the word every means every, right? And let me just tell you something. This, this coming May will mark 20 years since I graduated seminary. This coming August will mark 20 years since I began pastoring, right? It's hard to even think about that because I don't think of myself as that old, all right? But it's, it's there, 20 years. And I've had the privilege in those 20 years of pastoring only two churches. And it was a privilege to pastor First Baptist Church Ripley for six years, straight out of seminary. They took a chance on a 25-year-old kid, walked into a church that had been around for 150 years, and I loved pastoring that church. I've loved the last 13 plus years that God has called me to be your pastor. But can I be really honest with you right now? I cannot truthfully say that every remembrance of my time in those churches has been filled with joy. Amen? Well, you don't know that. I know that. I'll amen myself on that. It's true, all right? Every remembrance. Paul says, every time I remember you, I remember you with joy. I give thanks. Listen, there have been interactions in my 20 years I look back on now, and I still have to say, Lord, I'm thankful that you have forgiven me, and I'm thankful you forgive me for what I said in that moment or what I did in that moment, and I'm thankful you've forgiven them for what they did or said in that moment. And I'm sure you could fill this sanctuary with people that would say, and every remembrance we've had of you as our pastor has not been joyful either. That's a remarkable statement. Every time I think of you, I give thanks. Always means always praying with joy for you in every prayer. Paul absolutely loved this church. With every fiber of his being, he loved this church. Look at what he says in verse 8. He carries this even further. For God is my witness. That's pretty big, right? When you say, hey, God's my witness here. How deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now you can't see this in the, in the English version, but Paul uses language from the original language that he doesn't use about other churches at all. And it is a deep affection and love that he has for these people. And so I begin to ask the question as I've studied these, as I've studied the book of Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians, like he's writing to all these other churches, to Romans. He doesn't use this language. So what stood out to him about this church? What made this church such an amazing church that he remembered them with joy at all times, that he loved them with every thought, that every moment he thought of them, he gave thanks. What brought that joy? And so today what I want to do is I want to look at that question. What was it about this church that made it such a joyful church for Paul? And as we think about that, the goal is not just to think what made it good, what made that church good, but to ask the question, how can we become a church like that? Amen. 
That's the question. In fact, it leads me really to three questions that I've asked, and I'm going to ask of you, and I'm going to ask of myself to start with. And the first question I'm going to ask is this. When I think about this, when I read this, I ask about Paul. If he had this kind of joy, then they must have that kind of joy for Paul. And I ask myself the question, am I the kind of pastor that brings joy to the heart of God and to the people to whom he's called me to minister? That's my challenge. Am I that kind of pastor that when the congregation, maybe not every time, we've talked about that, but with most part it's joy and they think about how God is using and they're blessed and happy and glad that I'm their pastor. Not just because of who I am, but because of what God has called me to do and because of what we're called to do together. Second question is for you. Are you the kind of church member who brings joy to God's heart and to my pastor as he thinks of me? That's the question for you. Am I the kind of church member that God's heart brings joy in the way I am a doing church and to my pastor as he thinks of me? And then the third question is for us. So i got a question for me, a question for you, and now a question for us. Are we the kind of church that brings joy to God's heart and to the people inside and outside the community? I saw this sermon a few weeks ago. Actually, somebody in our church mentioned this sermon to me from a guy named James Merritt. And those are the three questions he asked at the beginning of that sermon on this particular passage. And I just remember having those questions circulate in my mind and in my heart and asking, is that who we are? And as we think through that, we come to the place where then we ask the question, well, then what made this church different? There are three things that I see that I just want to talk about this morning. There, there are many other things that we could go into, but three things that I think are important for us to see. And the first thing is, it was a church filled with unity. Now, Paul is writing to the entire church, and this is important. He's telling us at the very beginning, if you look in that chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Sometimes Paul would write to individual churches, or he rarely includes, like, I'm writing to the congregation and to the leadership. I'm putting them all together. Paul will talk about the love that they have for one another. Paul will talk about the humility that is to be shown and who they are, the way that they have treated him. And what we see in this passage, what we see in all the churches in the New Testament that are praised is that there is a unity that is involved. And we know, by the way, from this, even the second verse, that this is not a church made up of the same kind of people living the same kind of way from the same social status. In fact, we know that from two words that are there. In verse 2, it says, grace to you and peace from God. Now, in a normal opening of a letter, they would not say grace or peace. They would say welcome or hello. And there was a word that was used for that. The Greek word for grace is just a couple letters off of that. And so Paul, as he would say this, would change those letters just a little bit for his Gentile audience to say grace to you. The word peace there is the word that was used for the Hebrew concept of shalom or the Jewish version. And so in in verse 2, what you have is Paul saying, To my Gentile friends that are a part of this church, grace to you. And to the Jewish friends that are a part of this church, peace to you. Now that doesn't mean that there's a, a Gentile section, a Jewish section. He's saying we're all together as one for the praise and the glory of Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For us to be a church that brings joy to the community in which we live, that brings joy to the pastor's heart, that brings for me, the, for you, the joy of a pastor that's leading is that we must be a church unified. So what does that mean? How do you get there? Well, through scripture, you can study and find that what basic unity is, is when each church member centers on advancing the gospel while humbly putting the needs of others before themselves. When each church member centers on advancing the gospel while humbly putting the needs of others before themselves. I don't think it's by chance that Paul starts this letter with the way he says to all the saints. Now just don't get, um, it's, in my Bible it says saints. It may not say that in your translation. Don't get caught up on the word saints. That is not a Catholic concept there. It has been taken by the Catholic Church to signify those that are the really spiritual people. But that's not what it means in the New Testament. The book there, or the, in the New Testament, it literally means all the people that have accepted Christ as their Savior. The transformed ones. The set apart ones. And he says that's to the entire church there, including, and by the way, this is just interesting, these are the only two positions that are identified in the New Testament as required for a church to exist. Churches in the New Testament were much simpler than the churches we have now. They didn't have structures and layers. They had two offices. The overseers, that's what we would call today pastors, In the New Testament, there's overseers and bishops and elders, and those are words that are interchangeable. And the deacons, the servant arm of the church, they're the only two that are required by the New Testament to have a church. He says to all of you together, as we think about this personal letter, I want you all to know how much I love you. And so for us as a church, when we think about that, it requires each member, every single one of you, When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you become part of the global Big C Church, but you're also intended to be part of a local church. And according to God's Word, when you are a part of a local church, if you're a member here at First Baptist, you are to be a unifying presence. It is demanded of Scripture that you be a unifying presence in our church. You have a responsibility to be a source of unity and not be divisive. To love fellow church members unconditionally. To relate to them as Christ related to you. Which means you forgive them when they sin against you. That you give them the benefit of the doubt. That you trust that they have the best in mind. That you are working with them with the idea that it's going to be a productive relationship. There's no gossip or ill will spoken about them by you. Unity comes from being called to understand that part of your job as a member of a church is to be a unifying presence in it. But it centers around the mission to which we've been called. Now, Paul talks about this more in just a moment. We'll talk about it more in a moment. But he talks about how much they have worked with him and focused on the mission of taking the gospel to the world. If we are going to be the church that God has called us to be, we must not be unified around anything but the mission and the call of God on our lives and the call of God on our church. 
There are lots of things that churches use to measure their success. And many of those things are good, but they're not necessary and the requirement of what it means to be a church for the purposes of God. We're called to see people radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. We're called to see people's lives not only saved from their sins in order to purchase for them through God's blood a place in heaven, but also to see them discipled and trained in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are intended to be a group of people that impacts the community around which we live for the glory of His name. We must rally around the God-given mission on our calling. One of, you know, I talk a lot about C.S. Lewis. I quote him a lot. I'm not going to quote him today, all right? But I'm going to quote or talk about one of his friends. One of his best friends is a guy named J.R. Tolkien. He was also a believer. They used to get together and write, and Tolkien, some of you may know this, but Tolkien is the guy that wrote what has been voted by multiple publications as the greatest novel of the 20th century, which was Fellowship of the Ring. Now, some of you heard Tolkien and Fellowship of the Ring and you zoned out and said Nerdville has happened, all right? But there's a phenomenal moment in that story. Whether you watch the movies or you read the books, there's this phenomenal moment when these group of people that have nothing in common at all, in fact, some of them are people that would be against each other and sworn enemies, rally together because of the cause to which they've been called. So there's this moment where they have to decide who's going to take this magical ring to get destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom. And there's four hobbits and Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin and two humans, Aragon and Boromir and an elf and Legolas and a dwarf and Gimli and a sorcerer and Gandalf. And if your nerd stuff didn't go off a few minutes ago, it just really went off there, right? All right. And they're this, they're not, they don't have any reason to be together except that the littlest one of the hobbits comes out and says, I'll do it. And as soon as he does, the other hobbit says, and we're with you. And then one by one, they all like lay their bow or their axe or their sword on the table and say, then you have me as well. It's a beautiful picture of what ought to happen in a church. As we are gathered together for the purpose of Christ and we lay down whatever we have to be a part of it in unity to see God's agenda accomplished. And what should bring us together in unity is that desire to do the mission of God. But there's an important part of that that must be present and that is that we must do those things in humility. Paul gives the example starting out here because it says in chapter 1, verse 1, by the way, this is one of the only places where Paul writes a letter to a church that he does not call himself an apostle. He simply calls himself servant. He and Timothy both are servants, and that word is a word that literally means bond slave or bond servant, which means he is at completely the will of Christ Jesus. He is a humble servant of his king. And just in case you don't think service is an important part of the New Testament, the word servant is used 57 times and the word serve is used 58. And the characteristic that ought to most describe who we are as believers is that we are servants who put others' needs in front of our own. There are times that we may have to have intense discussions in the church. 
really hard discussions about things like theology and purpose and a biblical understanding of what we're called to do and how we're called to do it. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of the squabbles that happen not only in our church, but in most churches have nothing to do with the hard realities of a deep dive into the biblical theology of who we are and what we're called to do. Most of the time they're about territories and traditions and personalities and preferences and power struggles. And if you follow what the New Testament teaches us, then the way that we don't have those traditional fights and territorial battles and personality conflicts and war over preferences and power struggles within is that we as fellow believers all serve one another in humility with others' thoughts before our own. And we live that out in a way that shows the world what it means to sacrificially love one another and lead. I was reading this week um, from a, a book that has come out several years ago from the guy who used to be president of Lifeway, Tom Rayner. And he and his group used to do studies of churches that were growing and faltering and in between and try to figure out what the commonalities are. And he wrote in his book uh, about being a church member, he said that what he discovered when they looked at churches that were having a hard time, that were declining, that were plateaued, that weren't getting the push into the community that they needed, he said they identified ten common factors in those churches. He said, first of all, they were churches characterized by clashes over musical styles. They were churches that had lots of meetings that focused lots on details. They were churches that were focused on their own facilities. They were program-driven churches. They had an inwardly focused budget. They had an inordinate demand for pastoral care. They had attitudes of entitlement within the church. They were more worried about the change that was coming than the gospel spreading. They were consistently finding themselves criticizing. And there was evangelistic apathy. And he said, to sum up what I found is those churches were so much about I, me, mine, we, ours, us. That they weren't serving anybody looking to the health and the well-being of others. They were concerned only about them. And Paul says that he describes himself as a complete servant. Now we'll get there. But in chapter 2, he makes an even bigger play on this. You're like, great, that was hard enough. We don't need another big sermon on that. But it's coming because Paul reminds us that that's the way forward in Christ. The first thing that we see in this passage that reminds us of what a great church should be is that it has to be unified when each member, thinking of others above himself, commits themselves to the mission of the church. The second thing is that they were partners with him in sharing the faith partners with him look at verse 5 when he's talking about the partnership that comes he says because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now he talks about not only the partnership that they have from the first day until now in verse 7 and said it's indeed right for me to think this way about all of you because i have you in my heart and you are all my partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
The idea is, he says, that we are working together, that you are supporting me. Now, I want to tell you that Paul is here talking quite literally about a very realistic way, a very practical way in which they are supporting him because they have been giving offerings to the work of Paul. They have been sending offerings to the Mother Church in Jerusalem. They have been generous in their giving of him. They have supported him in his ministry. They have supported what he is doing. And so there's a very practical reality here that he's saying, I'm thankful for you because you took care of me that's financially that's physically that's emotionally you took care of me and i'm thankful for that and i'm thankful that we're working together as a body for that and he says not only have you done that when it's been good it was easy when i first came and we started spreading but if you remember in that story in acts paul gets thrown into prison because the people and the vendors in town are upset because he has so upended what's happening that people are giving up their their professions that are against the will of God and they've lost all this trade and they throw Paul and Silas in prison. If you remember, that's the story of him singing and the earthquake and being released and all of that. And he says, but even when I was in prison, whether it was good or whether it was bad, you have been with me. You are committed to me. You don't get upset when things don't go our way or when things go off track a little bit. You don't abandon or decide to change course. Paul says, through thick, through thin, through good, through bad, you are constantly with me for the sake of the gospel. I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 12, another place that Paul wrote about the fact that we are working together, doing, giving, cooperating, that we are the body of Christ. And the reality is, just as every member has a demand to bring unity into the church and to work towards that, every church member also has a demand to fulfill the role for which you have been called to serve in a church. And so whatever it is that you've been called to do, you must go after that and do that with as much verb and vigor as you can, with as much energy as you can muster. Paul says, I am so thankful for the unity that you have expressed, for the partnership in the gospel that you have with me. And we'll talk about this more as the letter unfolds. And the last thing that he says is, I am so joyful about the growth I have seen in you. He specifically says that they are growing in knowledge and love. They're growing in their understanding of who God is, of what God is doing in their lives, of understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that knowledge leads to love. It doesn't puff up, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians, but it brings love. Love among each other. Love of those in our community. Establishing what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. When I think about the church that Paul describes here, I think about a church that is unified together in partnership with him for the glory of God, for the sake of the kingdom, that is growing daily in their understanding of who God is and in their love for one another and the community in which they live. And I can't help but think, in light of events that we have seen over the last, I don't know, months, years, how much this world needs to see groups of people who don't always agree or look alike and aren't from the same background or economic level or social class loving one another in unity, serving a singular purpose of the cause of Christ in our lives. That's my prayer for us as a church, is that we would be the kind of church that when people outside of these walls think about us, that they think of us with joy 
They may not agree with us. They may not understand us. But they're like, man, those people bring joy to our community. I mentioned James Merritt in the sermon where he asked those three questions that I remind you of. Am I the pastor that brings joy to God's heart and to the congregation which he's entrusted to me? Are you a church member that brings joy to God's heart and to the pastor under which you serve? And are we a church that brings joy to the heart of God and to the community outside of us? James Merritt in that same sermon said that the question that he asked himself all the time about the impact they're having on their community, he said, are we the type of place in this community that if we were to shut our doors and no longer exist, that not just the people inside would be upset about it, not just those of us that are a part of this church would say, man, I really miss that, I really hate that, but that the community would be hurt because our church is no longer a part of it. And the question that we have to ask is, are we making the impact that God has called us to in the community in which we exist? Are you, as a church member, making the impact that God has called you to in the community in which you exist? Am I, as your pastor, making the impact that God has called me to in this community in which I exist? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality that our salvation is not dependent upon our works, but that you, O oh God, are the one that starts our salvation, continues it, and finishes it. Lord, even here as Paul is speaking to these churches, Lord, I'm thankful for that verse that we didn't even really cover, but is well known that says, Lord, that he who began a good work in you, Lord, that when you began the work of salvation in our lives, that you will carry it on to completion until the end of time. I'm thankful, Lord, for your promise that you are working on all of us. And Lord, today the reality is that even as I read this passage, there are lots of truths that stick out to me that I know is part of that sanctifying process that needs to happen in my life where I need to grow more in knowledge and in love and in unity and partnership. Lord, I pray that we as a church would evaluate who we are, where we are, how we're living. Lord, that we wouldn't let the preferences that we want determine whether or not we are bringing unity to this church. Whether we are serving the community in which we live. Whether we are fulfilling the call on our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would be humble seeking your will and the benefit of others above our own. And that most of all, Lord, we would give you the glory in all things that we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.